Good morning and welcome to the Black Friday edition of the Bulwark Podcast. Uh, look, I, I got to fess up. We, we're actually too hungover to actually do this on Black Friday, and I never do anything on Black Friday. So we've actually taped this early, but pretend that it's Black, Black Friday. And so we are joined by Tom Nichols, who sort of virtually didn't really actually get up early to tape this on, on, uh, on Black Friday. So uh, Professor Nichols, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Charlie. Okay, you know what? I have never gone shopping once on Black Friday. I have never gone to a store. I, th- I think my record is completely intact. Are you a Black Friday guy? Uh, no, I'm a virtual Black Friday guy. But I will tell you that you know part of my annoying, um, uh, curmudgeonly approach to the economy is that um, years ago when I was dating my now wife. And it was uh, Thanksgiving evening and we were just hanging out together and, it, you know, the clock struck midnight. And I said um, we were living in downtown Newport. And I said, hey, let's go see what Black Friday looks like, because we used to have a big box store right down the way from us. And that's when I realized that for all the talk about, you know, China, this is about 10 years ago, China's kicking our ass. And, you know, we the, the working man is getting a raw deal. Um, what really can cure you of that is to go at midnight to a to a Best Buy or to another big box store and watch people just walking out with armloads of Chinese electronics, and it mm. will you will suddenly understand the problem of you know people saying we have to do something about China and we have to fix our economy. Well, maybe if you weren't buying three televisions and four smartphones at a time. Um, you could do this. So Black Friday to me is always the reminder that American consumerism is why the economy looks the way it does and, you know, why American towns look the way they do and not because of, you know, the World Trade Organization or GATT or any of those other, you know, usual boogeymen. Black Black Friday is my kind of elitist, anti-populist holiday every year. Oh, I, I, I can see you out there on Black Friday. I mean, Tom, those are your people out there. I mean, I, yeah. I, when I think Black Friday, I think Tom Nichols probably standing out at the Walmart and, you know, w- waiting for his latest. I don't know. You've already got the black screen, t- the, the big screen TV. So I mean, at a well, certain point, how, how many big screen TVs can you have? How many yachts can you have? How many? Right. And, yeah. you know, how many, uh, you know, how many smartphones can you buy and how many air conditioners can you give away? And, you know, at some point you have to say to yourself, um, you know, for people that want to blame the rest of the world for their problems, Black Friday is always the day that reminds you that, you know, we really are the author of all our own troubles. OK, so now, Mr. Nichols, some, some people have probably forgotten um, if, if, if they ever knew that one of your areas of expertise besides all things political and military is you have strong views on the etiquette of flying. In fact, yes, you, have written the, you have written the definitive guides to what to do and what not to do when you're on an airplane. So you've kind of gone dark on that because nobody's actually flying. But for for people who remember, uh, Mr. Nichols at one point um, had a crusade, I would say a jihad, um, about people who would actually fly without shoes. That was in the before times, right? When the, when the, when the worst, most disgusting thing you could encounter was somebody who's flying barefoot. Actually, not more, more I think about it, it's like, 
what were they thinking? It's like, you know, now it's like masks. So anyway, give me your your sense. Here we are on Thanksgiving weekend, and apparently people are back. People, despite all the CDC warnings and everything, uh, millions of Americans are flying because, fuck it, it's Thanksgiving. We, we got to get out of town. We got to go see uh, grandma and uh, I don't know. Have have turkey and infect or, or or whatever. So thoughts on airline travel in the age of COVID during the holidays, Professor Tom Nichols. Well, first of all, scientifically, airline travel isn't that difficult. Um, and so when I react with horror to seeing you know the maps as we've been seeing over the past few days and. Um, here on Black Friday and Saturday, you'll see them again of all the airplanes in the sky, right? That all the flights, all the, you know, the, all of the tr flight trackers are nothing but airplanes. Um, actual airplane cabins, if you're wearing a mask and you're not sitting directly next to somebody, are, are not that bad. Hmm. The problem is where people are going, where they then all crowd inside um, and they are like little disease vectors jumping all over the country where they're going to gather indoors and hug and kiss and breathe and yell and uh, drink with each other. Um, and that's going to be the problem. So the, you know, I don't really react so much to the, to the sight of the airplanes, except of course, that you're going to have people because Americans are basically a nation of toddlers. You're going to have people who aren't going to wear masks and you are going to have people who are going to aggravate the flight attendants about basic protocols. Uh, um, and you are going to have people um, who are going to commit the ultimate sin, in my view, of taking their shoes off. Um, and I think that, you know, this is the idea that just for one Thanksgiving, especially with a vaccine right on the, on the horizon, right? This isn't like, hey, if you don't go do this Thanksgiving, you're never doing another Thanksgiving. This is this is literally medical um, authority saying just skip this one and it's the only one you have to miss because by this time of year from now we're going to have vaccines all over the place we're going to have most of this you know dealt with we're going to be out of the woods by late next summer maybe um, they just couldn't do it all of these overgrown toddlers had to get on airplanes and go from their places like college campuses back home to see grandma. Um, and a month from now, when we're up to our necks in more cases, we're all going to be looking at each other saying, how did this happen? So I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fixated on the Venn diagram of somebody who would wear a mask, but take their socks off. Oh, someone already sent me those pictures. <laughs> really? I've already seen that. Someone said to me, and I just left it alone, you know, because I'm like, you know, of all the big problems in the world, people, People acting like Todd. And I always think of toddlers because I always think of my daughter when she was, you know, two. And I would go to all the trouble of putting her little socks on and putting, and then she would, she would smile and look at them and sit down. And like all toddlers, right? You know, you know how this is. You kid, they pull their shoes off. They mm -hmm. hate, that's what kids do. And um, I said, you know, of all the problems in the world, this one isn't the one to focus on. But oh, people on airplanes have sent me pictures over the past months of, you know, the guy asleep with his uh, mask down on his chin, off yeah. his nose, under his mouth, with his shoes off. And okay, I thought, so I, this, is, this is America in 2020. But that's consistent. You, you would figure that the guy that would have the mask hanging off would also take his shoes off. I, I'm, I'm thinking about the person who would be very, very, you know, serious about uh, hygiene, make sure they have the mask and, you know, probably have the only. But, the but there's a reason for it. And there, is, there is a reason for it, Charlie. People, There are people who would put their mask on and say, look at me. I'm being very, um, you know, I'm being very 
conscientious and I'm wearing my mask. But like all Americans, we have to prove our independence by saying, I demand to be comfortable. And my com- even if I'm not that, because com- I, I have never understood why taking your shoes off on an airplane, unless you're one of those people as, you know, real problems with your feet swelling. And I always get these emails. I have a medical condition. Look, most of the people I see are young people, perfectly healthy, you know, um, legs and feet. Um, it's, it's a way of proving your independence. It's saying, I, I will accommodate some things, but I will declare my independence by saying my shoes are coming off. And if you don't like it, screw you. So maybe that's one of those cultural divides, inexplicable cultural divides, like dog people versus cat people, the people who want shoes versus not shoes. Because I actually always want shoes on my feet. I mean, I'm actually at the age where I kind of get excited if I get, you know, if, if it's a cold winter day and there's slippers around and everything like that. And, you know, that I that I have, you know, nice warm socks. I've really reached that point in life versus, you know, other people who will walk around completely barefoot. Why would you walk around barefoot? I have no what, idea. Really? I mean, there's like stuff on the ground. You know, you have, we have dogs around the house and, you know, they leave kibble around. You know, you step on you step on one of those little kibbles with bare feet. And it's it's miserable. It's 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 terrible. So I, we, and your feet are damp and they're like, it's like walking around your house with a moist Swiffer on the bottom I, of your I know, I know. Especially I when, you, when, you, when you look back, you know, and you, you see the footprints, it's like, no, this is why we have shoes. It's, it's, it's one of the marks of civilization, right? I mean, people talk about in military history, the invention of the stirrup, how the stirrup changed everything in terms of feudal. Uh, you know, the, the feudal system, because then the, the knights could ride on horseback and everything. I mean, this is like a big thing. OK, the stirrups, nothing compared to the shoe. The shoe is like, that's it. This yeah, is the line, right? Civilization, that's, that's not civilization. Civilization. That's how we went from villages to roads to interaction to, uh, you know, um, you know, and I, I I'll just tell a quick story about my dad. My father was um, Greek to, to his bones uh, and. He would spend every summer literally wearing nothing but a pair of shorts outside. I mean, my dad was like a Greek villager, no shirt, no shoes um, out in his garden, like the godfather, you know, walking around in his tomato plants and all that stuff. Um, and yet the minute my dad came in the house, he threw on a shirt, and he put on shoes. He just felt like if you're gonna not going to wear a shirt, it's, you know, summer is a great time. Then be out in your garden, walking around in your, your cucumbers and your tomatoes. And I always respected that about my dad, like. Uh, you know, hey, dad, let's walk down the street and get an ice cream. Okay, but first I got to put on pants. I'm going to put on shoes. And I'm going to put on a shirt. And that's just the way I grew up. So, I, you know, that's back when people understood the difference between being adults and being permanent, uh, you know, grade schoolers and toddlers. Okay, well, speaking of which, that's a great segue to talk about the state of American politics today and the American electorate. So uh, today's the day. Well, I'm sorry. Um, so by now, we should have released the crack. This is one of my favorite things ever. Seb Gorka, who went into his closet one day and uh, did a very, very short version. We don't have to run the whole thing. Just, just I want Seb Gorka talking about releasing the Kraken. I knew this day would come, but I didn't expect it so soon. Thanks to the actions and statements of Nancy Pelosi in the last 48 hours, the president has brought forth his decision and the Kraken has been unleashed. Now, that that was Seb Gork. Apparently, this is like a big thing in Trump world now because Sidney Powell has been saying that she's going to release the Kraken. So um, did, did you see this thing that the president tweeted on uh, on Wednesday? This is that we're, we're in the category of 
you just, I mean, it's been four years, but it's still crazy. So Lynn Wood is another crazy Trumpist lawyer. Okay. I think she's, he's associated with Kyle Rittenhouse and everything. And he tweeted out, um, Kraken, Sidney Powell's Kraken is in fact DOD cyber warfare program, exclamation point. We are at war, exclamation point, the Marshall Report. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because Donald J. Trump retweeted it, the president of the United States. So let me just read this to you, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Nichols. When Sidney Powell stated she has, all in caps, released the Kraken, most of us thought of Clash of the Titans and cheered her on for her gutsy remarks. She never blinked and held a stern, a serious face when she said it. When she, said it. she was not joking. And now we know why, exclamation point, the Kraken is a Department of Defense-run cyber warfare program that tracks and hacks various other systems to acquire evidence of nefarious actions by the deep state, exclamation point. President Trump and the loyal patriots in the military and space command. (laughs) (laughs) Everything always comes together, right? This is it. Ah, this is the space command. Now have all the evidence of voter fraud and election-related treason This will be used against the enemies of America. And so on this video retweeted by the president of the United States, Jeffrey Prather explains the Kraken and describes the Great Reset versus the Great Awakening. He has released a bombshell video where he sums up the real war taking place behind the scenes. You can watch this on your, uh, you know, Black Friday uh, free time. As he explains it, the CIA, FBI and DOJ are all treasonous swamp creatures who are dedicated to bringing down America and stealing the election and imprisoning all the real patriots, such as General Flynn, and in parentheses, and Roger Stone. Meanwhile, certain sectors of special forces operations, and now Chris Miller as acting defense secretary, are all aligned with Trump, the Constitution, and defending enemy and defending America against enemies, both foreign and domestic. The entire video can be viewed at this link, and the President of the United States retweeted it. So you, you, you know, military stuff. (laughs) Well, two things are important to point out. One is if there was ever a time to say that I do not in any way represent the views of the United States government, uh, you know, or the, or the U S military or the DMT or any of those groups, this is definitely the time. That's what the Uh, deep state would say. Yes. See, that's exactly exactly what you would say. Yes, exactly what a deep stater would say. But for the record, I'm saying it. The other is, as a resident of Rhode Island, just reminding everyone that fried kraken is the state food uh, of uh, Rhode Island, and um, it looks remarkably like a calamari. Um, is, is that true? There's a thing that's fried kraken? <clears throat> no. Okay, right, never mind. But I, I figured since we're off into um, you know crazy problem. stuff, I'd just go there. I, I, um, I'll believe I'll believe anything at this point, you know. Well, and you know, the president is counting on people who believe anything. Um, and that is what's going on. I mean, this is, you know, we're laughing. Mean, we're sitting here laughing about it. And yet there are going to be millions of people who are nodding, reading the president's Twitter feed saying, I knew it. Maybe. Yeah. And I think there is something, if I can just be a little more serious here for a minute, there is something really scary going on, which is that there are millions of people whose lives are so bereft of meaning that this is the most interesting part of their day and that this gives their lives meaning. This is what, this is now what passes for civic engagement 
for millions of people in the most powerful democracy on earth. And that should worry all of us. So what should go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? So um, I, I know that you are working on a piece where you're saying all is forgiven. Trump voters, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly it's exactly what I'm arguing, except the complete opposite, of course. Oh, OK, um, you know, I, I mean, this is a difficult thing because, you know, a while back, Arthur Brooks, who used to be the head of AEI, wrote a really good piece. And he said, look, we can't keep treating each other with contempt. Mm hmm. And because contempt is a really horrible uh, emotion. And at the time, my rejoinder to it, I wrote a piece in USA Today. This was probably about a year and a half, two years ago. And I said, yes, but what if people are expressing things that are contemptible? Uh, you know, where is the right, where do we, where do we set the, the mark between I want to keep engaging my fellow citizens and I want to live in a democracy where, you know, we believe in the free exchange of ideas and that there are some ideas that are just so crazy or contemptible that I simply cannot engage them anymore. And that my only recourse now is just to organize and outvote them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've reached that point. I, I understand that, you know, 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Not all of those people are sitting around, you know, listening to Seb Gorka talking about the Kraken and, um, you know, and cosplaying, um, you know, Civil War 2.0 and all that nonsense. There's a lot of people out there who said, look, I'm voting for Donald Trump because I'm a single issue abortion voter mm -hmm. or I am a, you know, I'm a self-interested. There was a guy that, that was interviewed about his vote. He said, look, you know, my, my 401k you know, is doing really well. And all I care about is my personal welfare. And so I'm voting for Trump. Um, but there are also millions of people who really think Donald Trump was fighting a blood drinking cult of pedophiles. And at some point, do you, do you know, we that? need a democratic intervention, a small D democratic intervention that says, I am not taking you seriously anymore. You know, no more Selena Zito profiles in diners of people whose racial grievances are just barely veiled. Um, you know, no more respectful interviews with the guy in Texas who says, well, if Donald Trump says I got to go into the streets with arms, you know, I'm going to do it. At some point, you simply say, you know, that if you really believe that you should take up arms against the government of the United States, then you are a problem for law enforcement. And if you are somebody who really believes that, you know, Antifa thugs are going to make you swear loyalty to, you know, black Muslims, then you're a problem for your family. But but this is not something that we have to take seriously as part of our national conversation. And I think at that point, you know, we we have to be done with expressions like reaching out and a national conversation and more understanding. I think it's time for the millions of people who were defeated in this election, whose choice, I shouldn't even say they were defeated, whose choice was defeated in this election. It's time for them to start understanding the majority of their fellow citizens. But this requires, this requires the return of shame, stigma, a respect for truth, right? Just I'm all about those of, things, as you some know. Some sort of thing, guardrails, which brings us back to Thanksgiving dinner. Because I'm guessing that that there were millions of events at which there was going to be some person saying, well, you know, you don't believe 
that Donald Trump actually lost that election. I, 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 I've heard, I've done my research, and I believe that he won by, uh, uh, that he won by a landslide, yeah. right? And, and you know, and the, here's the problem of, of, of that is that, you know, in 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 social media and in politics, you can sort of swipe away and not pay attention to those people, not not retweet them, not follow them, not give them any credence. But what do you do when if you actually have millions of people, then you might have to have dinner with somebody who believes the most batshit crazy things that are out there. So this is one I, of the good things about about the, the, the quarantine is that I'm not going to have that uh, that conversation. But. Do you confront people? Do you get in their face? Do you no. say, "Look, that is just not true." No, and, and you know, when I when I wrote about conspiracy theories and the death of expertise, uh, I said, you know, it's it's frustrating and pointless, and sometimes dangerous to confront people who really, you know, deeply believe in conspiracy theories. But I do have a bit of advice. Um, you know, now that Thanksgiving is over, Christmas is coming and this will happen again. And, you know, there are going to be dinners that are going to be uncomfortable. Um, my approach to this ha has been to turn to people like that when I encounter them among my friends or family, um, you know, in real life, in 3D, as opposed to <clears throat> social media. I said, look, you're wrong. In your heart, you know you're wrong. And I'm not having this conversation. Mm. And that's it, stopping. Yeah. you know, that just to say, because look, I think, and, and, you know, Charlie, you and I have talked about this before in terms of, you know, when, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this when we start talking about people like, you know, Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, but I think for a lot of these people, this is attention seeking behavior. This is pay attention to me behavior. This is people who are looking at you kind of out of the corner of their eye and saying, I'm going to hijack Thanksgiving dinner by saying, I know that Venezuelan voting machines paid for by George Soros, uh, you know, who was in league with the reverse vampires hired by the Rand Corporation, you know, they, they're doing it because they want the entire table to turn to them and to say, Uncle Ned, the fuck is wrong with you? Well, you know, but okay. So th there are the attention seekers, and there are the cynics. There are the the the, the people who they know better, and I, th I think they're in a lower circle of hell because uh, you know the the match slaps of the world who go along with this kind of crap, or the Rona McDaniel's and stuff. Because I mean, they're the careerists and the and the grifters. But there are people who believe this stuff, right? You know, and they actually believe it, and you can look in their eyes. And, you know, that, that's a scary thing. I mean, I can deal with the dishonesty and everything. It's the people who honestly believe this, you know, people who in every other aspect of their lives are probably reasonable, responsible people. But when it comes to this, it's just like they're mainlining the bat guano. I mean, but that's and that's why the, the response of just turning to them and saying, Remember that when it comes to this kind of a conspiracy theory or this kind of embedded belief that Donald Trump really won the election, arguing with them is to them proof that they're right. When you argue with them, they take that as not only as, you know, I mean, again, these are people that I think that are like emotional vampires. They just need that emotional engagement. But more than that, every argument you make is proof that they are right, that you are hiding something, that you know the truth. And I think there is nothing as devastating as just turning to them and saying, um, okay, 
you know, shrugging and saying, I understand you feel that way. You're wrong. You deep down somewhere in you, Uncle Bill, you know, uh, uh, Aunt Greta, you know you're wrong. And I can't argue this with you because I know that you know you're wrong. Now pass the potatoes. Um, and I actually had this happen long before Trumpism. I, when I was working in the Senate years ago, I, I um, some of the folks who listen in might remember that I, I worked for the late Senator John Hines of Pennsylvania. And I came home for a you know family dinner and one of my uncles was railing about how everybody in Washington is on the take and everybody in Washington is part of the, you know, the, I mean, it was really, by the way, this guy, um, this God rest his soul, this uncle of mine was an early Trump adopter in 1999 when Trump was a, um, uh, doing an exploratory move. He had a Trump early in 1999. Yeah. Cause remember Trump was reaching out in 2000. He was starting to move for it. And this guy went right onto Trump, like, like a fly toward, you know what? So, Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I already dropped an F-bomb, so I guess I don't know why I didn't say shit, but like a fly on shit. Yeah, so yeah. Um, uh, I I said to him, I said, I was, I said, I'm sitting right here. I work in Washington. And he said, then you're corrupt too. Okay. Well, that's a deal breaker. Well, but, but, the, and he, this is somebody who loved me to the day he died. And I just stopped and I smiled and I said, really? Mm-hmm. And he, you could see him stop for a moment and say, yes. And, but I said, okay, I said, you know, you're wrong. Now let's, you know, now pass the, you know, pass the potatoes. So, and I think, you know, it doesn't, it didn't help him very much, but it helped me. (laughs) So obviously this has long-term implications for democracy and the fragility of it. And and then, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about it, but we're also at this moment where this, this, this thinking is also politicizing and tribalizing the response to the coronavirus and which we're seeing obviously with 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 thanksgiving and where thanksgiving became this act of defiance the war against christmas becomes the war against thanksgiving and you see the country divided between people who are taking this seriously and not taking it seriously and i honestly okay I honestly thought that that if we hit this third peak if we had the kinds of numbers that we're seeing today right now that this would be sober, the sobering for people who would say, wow, you know what? They predicted this would happen. Um, yeah. It's happening exactly as the experts said it was was going to happen. Maybe I ought to change my behavior. I live in Wisconsin. I will tell you, it depends which county you are in, whether people are wearing masks or taking this seriously. Uh, you you go above north above a certain point in the state of Wisconsin and you'll go into packed bars and restaurants and nobody will be wearing a mask because they believe because we, the people, have done our research on the Internet uh, and on Facebook.com and Twitter.com and Parlor.com or whatever, and have decided that there's nothing to worry about. And plus, don't tread on me. This is the one of the most extraordinary experiences we've ever I mean, I've ever had watching. Nothing, nothing makes yeah. my heart sink than when someone says, you know, I've done some research. I know that's uh, that's a that's a that's a tip. It's off. a tell. It's, yeah, it's it always is. a tip off. It means that I cruised around the internet until I found a website that agreed with me and made me feel better. And and I'll just say it again, Charlie. Why do people do that? They they cruise around looking for this confirmation because deep down they have a terrible fear that they are wrong. Um, you know, um, John Le Carre, the great spy novelist, had a great line once about fanatics. He said, 
um, his British spy Smiley was talking about how he knew that his opposite number could be beaten. And he said, he's a fanatic and that's why he can be beaten because every fanatic harbors a secret doubt. But one, like you, I thought that when these cases started to peak, um, that this would kind of snap people out of the spell. But, you know, the scariest thing in the entire pandemic, and this was a moment when I was, I took no pleasure in being right. Um, I had said months ago, there will be people with ventilators down their throats choking out the word hoax. Mm-hmm. And when this South Dakota nurse recorded um, a short video, and then she went on CNN to talk about it, she said, people are literally dying while arguing with her that they do not have COVID. Like she said, people have said, are you sure it could be lung cancer? Like they would rather have lung cancer than COVID because it is so destructive to their own sense of themselves and to everything they've been conned into believing that they, she said their last emotions on this earth are rage and anger. She said, we, we try to get them to FaceTime their loved ones to say goodbye because we can see the O2 levels dropping. You know, we can see that they're headed into bad territory. We want them to talk to their families. And all they're doing is raging at us that they couldn't really have COVID because it's all a hoax. That's how deeply um, this brainwashing and this fusing of notions about science to notions about politics has taken over certain people's brains. And that's why I go back to my original point, which is there's no point in arguing with it. There's just no well, point in arguing it. I, 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 as you know, that there are people who've pushed back on that story, have have questioned that story. But I, I will tell you, um, I, I actually think that it's a credible story because it is consistent with the way that people cling to their worldview and and resist any kind of information coming in. The the, the problem about this and going back to you know, your you know, we we need to top stop taking some of these conspiracy theorists seriously. The problem is when you move over to the coronavirus, these people, and I mean this quite literally, are killing people with their misinformation. Absolutely. And so I have relationships with people who have gone Trumpy for a variety of reasons, and I find it, uh, I find it mind blowing, and I find it uh, de- depressing, and you know, soul crushing, et cetera. But I also know people who are actively using their Facebook accounts to put out misinformation, encouraging people to defy the social distancing. And I, I have to say that, you know, and a couple of these people live in areas that if you looked on a map of the United States, they'd be about the reddest areas in the world. I mean, in the, in the country. And I mean, in terms of the rate of infection, hospitalization and death, and that is deadly. And so, and so that is, I put that in a different category because I can't I can't interact with that at all. And that's I I think you mentioned Arthur Brooks and I had Arthur Brooks on my podcast a couple of times, I think. And he's a better person. He's a better human being than I am because he's able to forgive and he's able to get above some of these differences. I wish I were like Arthur Brooks, but I'm not. You know, and I think that this that this argument that I mean, it's a very Christian argument. And like you say, Arthur Brooks, probably a better person than either one of us, because I'm having that same trouble. But I also worry about the political project underneath the calls for, um, you know, well, you have to understand, you have to reach out, you have to find some common ground as a way of saying, uh, boy, I hope we don't end up delegitimizing the views of millions of conservative voters. Um, because I think people, I think part of what's, and I, I don't, 
I don't put Arthur Brooks into this category, but I do think I put a lot of the professional Republicans into this category of saying, look, don't let the fact that our voters have become complete lunatics turn you off to conservative politics. They're worried about the whole right. project going down, which is something you and I warned five years ago would happen if Donald Trump took over the Republican Party and took over the conservative movement. Um, you know, I I have been um, astonished at the degree to which um, there has been this kind of sudden changing of roles between liberals and conservatives. You know, conservatives used to be, look, we're the party of rationality and logic and, you know, we're a little cold hearted, but we go on empiricism. And if you don't like it, you know, tough. Um, now we're the party, we, they, they are the party of, well, you have to reach out. You have to understand. You have to get down to root causes. I love the fact that conservatives are now root causes people, right? That when, um, you know, when they talked about the dysfunction of the black inner city, they'd say, well, it's just black families and black culture and, and it's just dysfunctional and there's nothing you can do about it. Suddenly you have small white rural communities and conservatives are saying, well, let's probe this deeply. Let's be understanding. Let's, let's you know, layer this and apply all of this compassion. Um, you know, it really gives away the game to see those roles reverse this way. And I, I'm just skeptical of it. And I think you're right. The people who know better, um, I, I have actually encountered people. I, don't, I haven't heard whether this nurse in South Dakota, whether that story has been debunked. I've encountered people who literally are like that, who say things. No, I, like, I, I have too, which, which is why I'm willing to give it. You know, yeah, I, I mean, I'm willing to believe it because I've seen it with my own eyes among you know people who simply don't believe that COVID is a real thing. But the people, I think, you at the beginning of the program, you referred to the deepest, deepest circle of hell. I mean, there's a guy, a libertarian journalist. I'm not even going to mention who he is because I don't want to give him more oxygen, who has just been posting things that are just bad science about not wearing masks. And he's been doing it. He He's a Rhode Island writer. And, you know, Rhode Island is going through a tough time because of colleges, because of our population density, back and forth to Boston. Um, you know, we've 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 been going through a period of a spike. And he knows better. I mean, or, or this is an educated man who understands science, but he's also got this kind of insanely libertarian streak that says all government is bad uh, and the government telling you to do anything is immediately the reason you should tell government you're not going to do it. And well, that's going to get people killed. Yeah. And, and, and that, of course, there's there's a logical inconsistency there. Giving information uh, or following expertise is not the same as necessarily government coercion. So I want to talk about this, this talking across the divide, which I which I, I, I will admit, I kind of roll my eyes about that to a certain extent, except you and I have had the same experience, though. When we talk about we need to talk across the divide, there has been some conversation between the center left and the center right. And you and I have had conversations with people on the other side of the political aisle that we probably would not have had before. Right. So it's one thing to say, let's reach out to the people who are believing the Seb Gorka, you know, the, the Seb Gorkas and the Corey Lewandowskis and who believe that that there's some sort of, you know, space command cracking out there that's going to give Donald Trump a second term. They, you know, no, we're not going to deal with those people. We're not going to reach across the divide. But I, I think one of the nice the, one of the things that's happened and I think this podcast and our audience is a perfect illustration of it 
um, people that in that coalition of the decent who are willing to say, okay, we thought that we were absolutely on the other side of everything because we had different opinions about tax rates, now willing to say, you know, actually, those differences don't matter as much as we thought they did. And we probably have more shared values, even though we might disagree on certain public policy issues. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the center right and the center left. We're all becoming kind of, um, you know, John F. Kennedy Democrats or Nelson Rockefeller Republicans or some, you know, squishy middle that the people on the on both wings of our respective parties hate. Um, And I am encouraged by the fact that that there are plenty of people in the center left um, who agree with us, for example, that just as we don't need to talk to the Seb Gorka fans, um, we don't need to have long conversations with kids that are pulling down statues of George Washington. Right. Yeah, um, that's, you know, that, I mean, I just to be bipartisan about this, um, you know, if you're out in the streets arguing that, you know, the inner city should be a six by six block autonomous zone um, ruled by an anarcho syndicalist collective whose executive is chosen and rotate, you know, blah, 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 blah. I, that's not a serious conversation either. That's the kind of stuff you do right. um, because you're, um, you couldn't go back to college and you're bored. Yeah. And, and, um, and, that, and that's not going to solve the problem. So, well, it's not, it's, but it's also anti-democratic. I mean, it is, it is to its bones as anti-democratic as believing that space force is tracking your, you know, your phone GPS. Um, so I, I, I have actually really enjoyed the fact that when I do start arguing about policy with some of my friends on the left, it feels so blissfully normal. I know. It, it, Doesn't it, it feels right? it's very, like, very different. You know, uh, we go uh, back and talk about these various policy things because that doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really implicate whether you're a, a crazy person or not. Okay. So I want to go back student, to this. Student th- loan forgiveness, right? Exactly. You know, listen, oh, I'm not in favor of student well, you're, that's because you're a fascist. And, well, that's because you're a Bolshevik, you know, and, and yeah. it just feels so so wonderfully ordinary again. I, 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 just, I can't wait to get all of the emails when I finally write my piece about, hey, the forgiving all the student debt is bad policy and bad politics. I, I'm just going to get inundated. <laughs> so let's talk about the 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 whole um, ongoing attack on expertise. I, I think that one of the and I, I wrote about this this morning in, in my newsletter, the dumbing down of the Senate. In this this sort of faux anti elitism that you're seeing from people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley and, and and Marco Rubio, it is this hangover from Trumpism that they feel that they need to appeal to the Trumpist base, which in their minds is of course uneducated, unsophisticated, and therefore these guys who are these are smart guys, they feel the need to dumb themselves down, and I, I think you sort of saw this. In the reaction, the, the, their initial reaction to the uh, the national security team that Joe Biden uh, appointed. Now, you obviously know these folks better than I do. As a layperson, I was pretty impressed by how qualified they were and what a contrast they represented in terms of their demeanor and their character and their qualifications and their education to the clown show that we've put up with for most of the last four years. Well, I actually think it's worse than that, Charlie. I think when it comes to Holly and Ru- Cruz and Rubio, um, first I'll just say about about Biden's national security team. If you didn't think that at some point Tony Blinken was going to be Secretary of State, then you just weren't alive for the past ten years. I mean, you could have 
you could have randomly generated a democratic administration and come up with Tony Blinken and, um, you know, Avril Haines and, uh, or people like them. And I don't say that as a, I, I say that in a really good way that, you know, their resumes are the, are what you would totally expect. I mean, I'm glad that the secretary of state is a former deputy secretary of state. Um, you know, who's not supposed to work. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but Rex Tillerson until Mike Pompeo came along, Rex Tillerson was one of the worst secretaries of state in American history and proves yet again, that running a big company and running the government are two different skill sets. So I I'm, you know, so far I'm hoping that he picks Michelle Flournoy as um, secretary of defense, but you know, it's got to be a team Biden's comfortable with, and I'm sure whoever is chosen is going to be a completely normal human being who has administrative skills and policies that fall within the range of perfectly ordinary, you know, centered left Democrats. But the reaction that we're getting from these guys is, well, these guys are, they're Ivy League educated. They go to the right think tanks and go, you know, and say the right things, but they're panda huggers or well, Josh Hawley. What a group of corporatists and war enthusiasts yeah. and big tech sellouts. Let me take I mean, you back to the to the movie version of uh, Game Change. The remember the the sure. John Heilman Mark Halpern mm-hmm. game. Okay, so they made a movie out of it with uh, Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin, and there was a moment in it that explains everything about Rubio and Cruz and Holly, and that is when they're trying to get. Palin kind of back on the reservation and she smiles and says, I'm not going back to Alaska. And I think it's important. Why are Cruz and Rubio and Holly and guys like this doing this? Because no one hates living among the rubes as much as the people from states where they have moved to Washington and they like living in the Emerald City. So they have to adopt this protective coloration of, you know, Ted Cruz, who didn't want to study with anybody that, you know, didn't go to Harvard or Princeton and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, they're all of them are saying, I'm not going back to Arkansas. I'm not going back. I'm not going to, I'm not living in Tallahassee. I'm not going to go back and live in Texas. I live in Washington and I like, Hawley doesn't even have a home in Missouri. He lives in Northern Virginia. People like these guys like it there. And they know that the way that they get to keep living in, in the Emerald city is to, is to adopt this protective coloration of, you know, being ordinary folks and pretending like going to an Ivy league school, which all of them did except for Rubio um, is a bad thing. And it is, it is the most cynical, most there is, it is a bottomless cynicism that basically says, I am going to keep, um, uh, I'm going to keep fleecing the rubes by by projecting and saying that everyone else who went to a good college is fleecing the rubes. It is it's really disgusting. Yeah, and and, and it comes off as a little bit fake. I, if they think that they are going to be able to take the mantle of Trumpism and just simply by the performative assholery of their of their tweets, I think they're a little bit naive. No, and when I wrote about this, I said, look, I'm not the worst actors in this are not, are not the actual idiots in the in the Senate. Be like Marshall Blackburn or you know Tommy Tuberville. Um, to leave those aside, you know what's interesting about you know Cruz and Cotton and Hawley and. 
uh, and, and, and Rubio is that they have pretensions, right? They have pretensions to be the serious thinkers. You know, right. they'll, 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 you know, Mike give, Lee, give constitutionalist. And what's with Mike Lee? Well, I mean, is he, you know, these Mike, are serious. Mike, these are one-time serious people. These were at one time experts. Right. Um, you know, Mike Lee has figured out that, um, you know, that, that, that the only way to preserve Republican minority rule, and let's call it what it is, white minority rule, is to find inventive new reasons, uh, you know, for uh, justifying why Joe Biden can win the election by 8 million, ah. 7 million votes. And yet we still have to sweat it out about what, you know, 10,000 people in Wisconsin are doing. Um, and uh, instead of making a principled argument to say, you know, we need a new federalism or we need to preserve federalism, but we need to change things. Instead, you get these kind of half-baked Ben Sass articles about things that will never happen. And all of them boil down to the same thing, Charlie. I think they all boil down to, I like being a senator. That's what it boils down to. I like living in Washington. I like being a senator. And if I have to say these things to keep, as you say, somebody like Tommy Tuberville, you can almost excuse them because it literally is people who don't know him. Yeah, you're an idiot, you know, and say, so, I mean, I've always had this different uh, categorization. You know, there are certain people who are just yeah. dumb as a box of rocks. And therefore, I think, they're, you know, it's it's not it's not great. It's the really smart people who know better, who are being cynical, who are lying to the rubes in order to convince them that they are one of them that I think right. are in a different moral category. So, for example, I mean, I do look, I. Sean Hannity is Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity is as dumb as a box of rocks. You know, you right. listen to him, you know, and you get dumber for every minute you and listen to him. I know who him. you're so, about to bring up. <laughs> and I'm saying so so in this in this category, Tucker Carlson is far more dangerous, I think, and far more culpable. Although hideous is the word I would use. There's a hideousness there that, you know, you're right. I mean, Sean Hannity, you you shake your head and you say, you know, this guy is having the time of his life. He's making millions of dollars. Um, you know, he he doesn't, you might as well try to explain algebra to a puppy uh, to, to have an argument with him. Tucker Carlson knows better. Tucker Carlson yeah. has actually thought this through. And what he's doing, um, and I, I don't want to get this quote wrong, so I won't attribute it. But as someone who knew Tucker Carlson once said, Tucker likes money and he likes being on TV. And he has made a conscious decision that if I have to say these half-baked, you know, completely cracked things to, to make money and to stay on television, I will. Um, now, he claims to have had a big kind of populist epiphany along the way. Uh, I think that is pure horseshit. Um, I think he has figured out that, you know, there, ha there has to be life after Trump and he's looking for his sweet spot. Um, after, you know, he himself has brought up in interviews that, you know, being fired and losing a show was a trauma. And I think he said, you know, again, I go back to the Sarah Palin thing. I'm not going back to Alaska. I think this is Tucker Carlson saying, I'm not getting fired again. I'm going to be on TV for as long as I want to be on TV. Well, it's, it's a sign of how we've lowered the bar, though, that people were giving him credit for pointing out that Sidney Powell was completely nuts. Look, I mean, this, 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 you, you, you don't get a cookie because you recognize that the crazy woman is crazy. And, and of course, off. yeah. And then two days later, he's like, well, obviously this, uh, this election is not, uh, is not fair. And we all know this. So he'll, he'll go, but he'll go back to the tribe, 
But you know, let let's let's hold off in you know handing out the Nobel Peace Prize to somebody saying that Sidney Powell's claim that you know the Venezuelan communist Hugo Chavez George Soros conspiracy was out there. Um, this is not a sign um, of the fact that that you have now become Edward R. Murrow. And think of how normal <clears throat> someone like Tucker Carlson has made it. I know that Sidney Powell is a part of our national life. Someone who who would normally be, you know, standing in front of a storefront law firm somewhere, you know, handing out flyers while wearing a sandwich board. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, every time somebody like Tucker says, well, I've reached out to her for comment, you know, I, Hey, I walk by guys in the Boston common shouting these things. I don't reach out to them for comment and then write about it. Um, and, and, it, you know, he is culpable for that because he knows better. He knows exactly what he's doing. And I think after Trump is gone, you know, you and I and others in the Never Trump movement, we've had this discussion about, do we just ignore Trump? What happens to the Trump voters? Does Trump try and run again? Um, I think, you know, we can ignore, mostly ignore Trump. I, I think he will be far less powerful than any of his, than any of the commentators out there are giving him credit for. But I think we, I think we cannot ever let up the pressure on the enablers and the rationalizers who brought us to this horrible moment where we all have to know who Sidney Powell is. Oh, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that that that's going to go on. That's going to be a project for years because, and, and I've said this before, I've said this many, many times, Donald Trump himself does not bother me as much as, as the people around him went, yeah, I'm okay with that. Or the people who write the columns in the Washington Post explaining why he's, it's really good and how, how we don't really understand. It's the people who have misused their position to validate some of the worst stuff. And they're you know, still, and every one of those people is still there, and they'll continue to write. You know, continue to write. They will continue to change history. They will continue to move the goalposts, and they will continue to be um, leeches on the American political culture. You know, it may surprise some of the people listening because I've had this discussion with my wife. Right, we sit there, and of course, I I became America's companion. Uh, Daniel Dale was the great fact checker. I was just yeah. the guy snarking from the balcony during every Trump press conference, but. For most of those, my wife was sitting with me and she would just shake her head and say, you know, he's such he's such a hateful person. He's so terrible. And I would always say, and this is, you know, maybe where I, I try and become a little bit more Christian like Arthur Brooks. And I say, you know, he's mentally ill. Hmm. I mean, there's only so much hate that you can direct at Donald Trump. You really shouldn't hate anybody if you're a good, you know, you're a good person and you try to think of yourself as a Christian. But I would say, look, it's I don't. He's he's sick. He's a sick man. I mean, he's a deeply mentally ill person and always has been. But then the real fury begins when then they cut away and you've got, you know, Greg Gutfeld yucking it up about how awesome it was or Tucker Carlson, you know, patiently explaining why all of this is, you know, 40 dimensional chess. You're right. I mean, those are the people that you just cannot forget and you can never let them whitewash what they did to our country because yeah. without them, Trump, I mean, I really think the Trump clown show would have run off the rails even during the primaries. I mean, I, I, I was one of the people arguing that the Republicans should keep him off stage, um, you know, treat him like David Duke and all of these, you know, there were plenty of columnists who, who really took issue with me. I, I don't want to say who they were, John Pedoritz anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, 
that said, no, no, you can't. He's the voice of the people and, you know, he should be defeated, but he needs to speak up. And, um, you know, if we had taken that more seriously and really gone after the people who were treating Trump seriously and challenged them to argue why this is, why somehow this is good for democracy, um, I think we would have been in a better place. And and I think a lot of those people are going to try and launder their reputations when Trump is gone and say, well, you know, I never really, and I just thought, and no, I, I, I mean, on this, I well, think. And, and they, and they, you know, they've done a public service though, in letting us know who they are and in, mo- and in moving the window of what is morally acceptable. And it, and it, I think it has changed. It has certainly changed conservative politics and Republican politics because we, we understand what, what is central and mm-hmm. what they are willing to jettison uh, under certain circumstances. So, um, and I maybe don't think, we, I, I don't think we ever need to listen to Bill Bennett talk about the importance oh of, of virtue or character. I, I don't think that we need to listen to Victor Davis Hanson as somebody who really talks about an understanding of America's role in the world. I don't think that we ever need to take Hugh Hewitt seriously when he talks about um, American you know, politics and, and conservative ideas. That, that's, that's a long list. Now, that's not to shame them. It's just to say, look, let's just remember how we got to where we are. And and because some of you people seem to think that you'd like another four, eight years of that, you know, I, I mean, if you, if you if, if you if you want him to run again, then then it's he's going to be in your head for the next four years as the president out of office. And then you actually want to put him back in the Oval Office, despite what he has done and what you've seen every single day. I, I saw you do that. I think, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with shaming. I saw you do that on Twitter with some of these guys to remind oh, them. Yeah. And you wanted another four years of this. And and in right. some ways, I think this has been a really salutary effect on the conservative movement because it has, um, you know, it has reminded us, or it, I can't even say it reminded us, it's clarified to us, um, you know, who among us were the the hypocrites and the the opportunists. I mean, you, you know, you and I and every other former Republican, we've taken this huge amount of static about you know, you were always like this and you were always part of this racist movement. You know, in our defense, I'm going to say, I always thought of myself as a conservative and I knew there were some distasteful people and some really bad people in our movement, just as there are in all of them. I mean, Democrats are going to have to go through the same process of self-examination down the line. They don't know it, but they're going to have to at some point. Um, But I what I didn't realize is how many of those people were sitting right next to me. No, I know exactly what you mean. And, and this is, this is ongoing. Um, I, it's, 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 it's embarrassing to say, you know, for, for, for example, I mean, I, there's, there's a lawsuit here in Wisconsin that, that actually asked for the entire election to be declared null and void, that the legislature dominated by Republicans choose the electors, and that the governor, who's a Democrat, be ordered to accept the Trumpian electors. Okay, and they want the state supreme court, which is a four-three conservative majority, to 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 do that. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think they're going to do that. I don't think that they're the. But but I know those people, and that's that thought in my mind. Do I know you? <laughs> just, yeah. Are you are you capable of even thinking of this? Because if you are, then I mean. F us all. It's just the, of course, I also live in Wisconsin where we have seen one after another of the people that we thought were the future of the party become either invisible um, or completely all in. 
I mean, Paul Ryan has virtually vanished off the face of the earth. Ryan's previous decided he was going to flip and become completely Trumpy. Uh, Scott Walker wants to turn himself into Charlie Kirk. And I don't know what the fuck is going on with Ron Johnson. I, you know, when the primary season began five years ago, I thought I didn't know much about Scott Walker. And I thought, you know, boring, technocratic Midwestern governor, my kind of guy. And then I, you know, within a year, I was like, oh my God, you know, like, was it all, and this, I think this is the, the question that will always torment us. Was it always like this? Yeah. Or did they change? Um, and to some extent now it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They are who they are. And I think if they changed, some of them could argue, well, I changed, then that reveals a weakness of character. Yeah. I don't know. I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. And you go back and start to reverse engineering things you thought you understood and, and that you felt very, yeah. very strongly about. And you ask yourself, did you really understand what that was about, who you were with? Um, and is it possible you were on the wrong side of those issues? And I'm willing to be open-minded about that. Think, you know what? This is what I imagined was was happening here. And maybe we were completely wrong because now we know that many of the people who were um, framing the issue were not people of good character or acting in good faith that that may be, in fact, uh, um, you know, on, on the whole issue of voting, for example. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I've talked about this on the podcast. You know, I spent tw 20 years saying, no, of course, Republicans are not trying to suppress the vote. No, that's completely unfair. They're, they are really concerned about the integrity of the ballot box and making sure that everybody's vote get counted. Well, now what? look what's going on here. I mean, they're literally like they've pulled off the mask and it's like, yeah, actually, we do want to disenfranchise millions of voters. So reverse engineer it. So 20 years ago, what were they really trying to do? I mean, I thought I knew and I was part of it. What the hell was I actually up to? So, and, and hey, listen. I, yeah, I was going to Go say, ahead. and even on issues that we thought we were just fighting as a policy issue, were the people that were fighting alongside us were they fighting about this as a policy issue or was there really a darker agenda? Well, that's right. And, and that, that's, that's something that, that, that haunts us. And I don't have definitive answers at this point. So Tom Nichols, we got a four day weekend here. We're like halfway through it. Enjoy it. Be thankful. Try to get from here to Christmas. And thanks for coming back on the podcast. Always great to talk to you, Charlie. I hope you have a, a, a wonderful and restful weekend. You and your, and your whole family. And thank you for listening to this special Black Friday edition of the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again.